Where's the script, Adam? What? The script. Where's the script? I thought you were going to do the script. What? No script, you fucking idiot, Adam. You total fucking idiot. That was your job, you fucking You cretin. You're a fuckhead. That's what you are, a fuckhead. It was a joke, Joe. I was joking. It was a Christmas joke. Oh. Oh, oh, I see. Oh. Of course I've got a script. It's a funny script. I took ages researching it online. It's going to be hilarious. That, that looks like a lovely script. I'm sorry, I, I flew off the handle a bit. That wasn't very Christmassy. No, it wasn't. I apologise. Christmas. Let's have a look at this script then. Well, this this is the script. What, even this bit? Yeah, see there where you said, let's have a look. Oh yeah, and this bit as well, that's clever. Yes. Go on. <laughs> I love satire so much it I got a prescription. I love turkey, but I hate bitches. Well, that's not very good. You could have come up with a better one for me to say there. Well, here's where you have to eat humble pie, because look at your next line. Oh yes, it was I who wrote this script all along, along with the writers of Peep Show. So it's all my terrible fault. I did write the script, but it turned out to be an absolute turkey. Well, I'm glad you gave yourself that lame joke and not me. Mm, I've been a fool. I've shot myself in the feet. Um, okay, say your next line then. Go on, say, say your next line in the script. I'm written. a big smelly poo and I smell of poo and I am poo and I like poo. <laughs> okay, let's, let's go off the script now. What is this episode, and what is this podcast? Ah, off, off script, right, um, okay. Forgive me. Uh, forgive me. Forgive me. Have you ever been to Peppa Pig World? <laughs> is everything all right, Joe? Yes, I'm just being statesman-like in a way that will probably already seem dated by the time this episode comes out as doubtless Boris Johnson, and here's where the pre-written script um, starts to reveal itself once again, will have hosted an illegal rave using taxpayers' money and burned piles of masks made of £50 notes or something like that. But anyway... Actually, with all of that in mind, can I show you something about that and get um, get a smoking hot satire take on it? Yes, of course you can. I'm okay. always ready with the smoking hot satire takes. Yeah, but at least you have the decency to cry and show some humanity rather than all that. I don't know, it was an apology, it was pitiful. It was a classic new apology in which she said, I'm really sorry if this was a distraction. I'm really sorry if we seem to make light um, of the suffering of other people. You didn't seem to make light, you did make light. Mm. You were having a laugh about what lie. Obviously, I'm a Labour politician attacking the government over this Christmas party, and this is the BBC. So in the interest of balance, I should make it very clear that even the Tories are attacking the government. On <laughs> this is the footage of the Mock Downing Street press briefing last year, filmed on the 22nd of December, four days after the alleged party had taken place. I've just seen reports from Twitter that there was a Downing Street Christmas party on Friday night. Do you recognise those reports? <laughs> I went home. <laughs> hold on, hold on. Um, uh, uh...
Would the Prime Minister condone uh, having a Christmas? What's the answer? I don't know. I don't know. Well, the party was cheese and wine. Just be clear. It's not <laughs> Is cheese and wine all right? No. It was a business no. meeting. No. <laughs> I'm joking. This is recorded. This fictional party was a business meeting. And it was not socially distanced. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's not great, is it? Okay, Joe. so can you quickly explain what I just showed you? Um, you just showed a clip from the satirical BBC show Have I Got News For You, where the clip of Allegra Strassen at the mock press briefing was um, was included and where she was sort of corpsing at the idea of the impossibility of ever trying to explain this heinous event away. Yeah, so there's a few reasons why I wanted to talk about this. One is this whole Christmas party stuff mm. that's happening in government which is not satire that's real mm. um so there's first the suggestion that a christmas party was held then there's this footage which is from a mock press briefing isn't it yeah. this is them practicing yeah, yeah. the press briefing because they knew they'd have to lie about it yeah they also knew there was no acceptable lie yeah that they could tell and since that episode of having an issue is broadcast there's also this the christmas quiz stuff so boris johnson appearing yeah. with tinsel and things like that so i think and i'm not alone in this that that is absolutely horrendous yes. i mean last christmas was awful wasn't yeah. it? it was really brutal it was really yeah. traumatic to know that this was happening at the same time so i don't think it's funny at all uh, as i don't think anyone else does no. but then how so one of the questions is how do you how do you satirize something like that without making light of it because on in the one hand it's right in the boris johnson playbook isn't it like you can't mm. be angry at me because here i am with fucking uh, here i am with tinsel on my head having a laugh and isn't it funny we were having cheese that's and wine exactly and stuff. why we're angry with you yeah but i mean if you lean too heavily into if you lean too hard into it it becomes a joke doesn't it because the trappings of it being a joker are there already well but if it's a joke it's like it's a really sick joke isn't it it's yeah like, i mean i wouldn't have thought there was anything i certainly don't think now there is a single thing maybe this would be a fun game that Boris Johnson could do that I would wouldn't believe. No. Like I don't think even his closest friends and allies could look you in the eye without corpsing and say Boris Johnson is an honest man. Yeah. Boris Johnson tells the truth. Boris Johnson is a man of integrity. Like I I would th- I would have always believed literally pretty much anything of that man. Yeah. So it's not about what we can accept from him, but it's I think it's more like what we can how much of what has become reality we're able to accept because you know like you said last christmas was it was appalling i couldn't believe that the news was you can't you can't leave you can't be with your families you can't um stay overnight you're gonna have to exchange christmas presents in a service station through the windows of your car like that was that was a really difficult thing to get your head around not just and what I mean by that is not just the awfulness of it happening and all the people who couldn't see one another, but the fact that we live in a world where you can be told things like that, mm-hmm. that we were, we were inhabiting a version of reality where someone could stand up and say, look, I know, I know I said two weeks ago it would be inhumane to cancel Christmas when Keir Starmer said it, um, but I am. I am cancelling Christmas. And it turned out he did think, he, he wasn't lying, he did think it would be inhumane to cancel Christmas for himself. Because mm-hmm. we already knew they had a bubble in Downing Street for Christmas Day, didn't we? Which yeah. they weren't supposed to have. Yeah. Um, and that, that he did that, he said that, and he, then did this. Like, that is such a surreal... Like I say, it's not that you can't believe it of Boris Johnson, it's that you can't believe 
that is what reality looks like yeah. in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. I mean, here, last week it was, there were parties, people were very relaxed inside Downing Street, people were staying behind, there was one office where they would, it was sort of a known secret that you could go and drink in there when the mm. restrictions were up. He had a friend stay with him at Christmas. Yeah. 11 out of 12 bathrooms tested for cocaine have cocaine in them in, yeah. in Westminster. And then this video yeah. is... Yeah, and I think the most telling bit of that video... Um, Although you don't very often see it pan out so that you see all the other people sitting there laughing as well. Mm. But it's when they ask her the mock question, would Boris Johnson condone having a Christmas party? And that's when she really gets the giggles. Yeah. And that and that tells you, I think, potentially everything, doesn't it? And that she's... It, it, again, it's just this bizarre situation where she's lost her job for laughing at a thing that they're still saying didn't happen. Yeah. So... Is it, are they sacking Allegra Stratton for being a mad woman who makes jokes about events that never happened and yeah. as such isn't reliable in office? Yeah. Like, and we're expected to swallow all of this and to brace ourselves for more restrictions yeah. in I mean, the face of it. I'm not the first person to point this out, but last week Boris Johnson kept saying there was no party that I'm aware of and COVID rules weren't broken. And so, well, yeah. If there was, if there was no a party, <laughs> then COVID rules were broken. Yeah. That's, and, and then also the thing about... Um, well, it's you've got to understand Downing Street isn't just like a normal house. It's a place of work. It's very big. Fuck that shit. If somebody had been having a party at work, and I don't even live at work, mm. but the amount of time I'm in it, if somebody had been having a party anywhere on the on the estate, you would have known about it. Yeah. Especially if you also lived there. And especially if, by any sort of reasonable standards of what one might expect... They needed permission from him. You don't just start having a party at work when the boss is there and he lives there if you don't think that you might get away with it. And also, if, let's be fair, he is not at the party. Why would you? Like, why would you have a party in a place where the boss lives and will be cross with you if he finds out about the party? Yeah. And how could that boss possibly not know that a party was happening? Yeah. Yeah, if we had a party in the executive wing of the university where we work and the VC didn't come downstairs and tell us to leave, what yeah. would that say about their position on the party? It means yeah. that they, were, they, yeah. they knew about it, yeah. So, but the, so that's the context, but the reason I wanted to show you the clip is because there's two interesting features in it. So this mm. is being discussed on a satirical panel show, as yeah. they keep saying. Ian Hislop doing something which we've seen him do a few times. Yeah, just being angry. We we just states the facts, doesn't he? Yeah, just he, sort didn't, of says, he didn't seem to laugh at it, you did laugh at it. yeah. Um, and you know, so there's his, him saying the moral indignation. I now recognise that after the last few years of working on satire, as a mode of satire known as yeah. the monologue, yeah, where you yeah. have a person speaking as themselves or a slightly exaggerated version of themselves stating truth, stating the truth of the matter in an angry way. Um, but then also you've got Jess Phillips is the host, who yeah. is obviously a Labour MP. She points out in the clip, which I thought was fascinating in this episode, um, yeah. because she's reading out jokes which we know are written by lots of people. Yeah. But also, it seems that when you're presenting "Have I Got News for You," you can say things that you perhaps wouldn't say otherwise. That there's yeah, not much flack for kind of outlet for MPs who have to be careful what they say in other situations, yeah. isn't it? Um, well, most of them are careful. Yeah, and uh, but I mean, we were talking about this the other day, and as you pointed out, she is quite funny. Anyway, yeah, she? she's. Quite... I've always thought she was quite a like elegant way with words, and she tends to sort of skewer things yeah. quite efficiently in tweets. But yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Ian Hislop was as as he often is, sort of doing his um, 
you know, his cheeks were wobbling with fury there, weren't they? Yeah. And he was he was visibly angry and the the crowd, the audience rather, didn't laugh, they applauded. So it's interesting, isn't it? The only person who can get a laugh from thinking about that party is Allegra Strathen. Yeah. That's uh, that's the most anyone has giggled about that party oh. or any discussion of that party. Yeah. I just, I don't think there's many ways to make it funny, is it? No. It just makes you despair. Yeah. And I do think, and we've talked about this before, but I think that is a function of Have I Got News For You that people don't tend to talk about. So people always mm. say, oh, Have I Got News For You created Boris Johnson or whatever, which yeah. Ian Hislop actually rejects as a thesis. He says yeah. that was already happening. But it, it's a space on some occasions like this where, where Ian Hislop can just say, without any concern about bias or editorial lines, like that, he can just say how things are and get applause and not mm. laugh. So it's satire is a space where truth is just exists. And it's not comedic. It's just It just exists. Well, his truth, I suppose I should say. Yeah. It's not the truth, is it? Yeah. So then, I mean, how close is that to satire? If it's just Ian Hislop saying it as he sees it and that massively resonating with the audience, is is that still satire? I think it's the the kind of, that monologue kind of satire. I mean, he, so we t- what is satire? Satire is, it has to have a specific target, something that's ridiculous or dangerous, it's got that. Some level of exaggeration, well, actually, it doesn't require it, although I suppose his indignation could be mm. the exaggeration. There's a quote that I was telling you about the other day, wasn't there, which was the satirist is someone who is irrationally angry because of the rush, because of their rational view of the world. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I suppose it's not. Is it satire? What do you think? I think it's still on the right page. Yeah, I mean, as well, we talked about this in um, a lockdown episode last year, didn't we, where we talked about there's something about being broadly positioned within the genre of satire or being perceived to be which means that you can you can say things and do things so if you're sort of defined and considered to be within the vicinity of satire that opens up certain opportunities for what you can say yeah and and how angry you can be yeah yeah i think that's exactly it so even if the statement itself is not satirical it's permitted because it's within a satirical frame Mm. what do you think about the meme i'm showing you on the screen now um, so it says people dying um, and Allegra Stratton um, sort of leaning on the desk and laughing in the clip we're all so familiar with. And then it says losing a 120k job and it's Allegra Stratton um, in her puffer jacket and puffy eyes um, looking sad as she resigned last week. I think, yeah, I mean, it's, it's fair enough, isn't it? Me laughs at people dying, also me cries when I lose a job lol as if I just lost my job um, is not the most inventive of memes perhaps but I mean yeah I, I think to be honest losing a 120k a year job isn't going to be probably that much skin off Allegra Stratton's nose no. I mean I think she was doing alright before she had that job yeah. and she'll do alright after it well she used to work for Sarah Vine didn't she yeah. Michael Gove's wife, Rishi Shunak was the best man at a wedding yeah I think, to be fair to her, and God knows being fair to Allegra Stratton wasn't on my to-do list when I got up this morning, and um, if you watch some other clips of her doing other things in the past, like, she's not, for my mind, not a very sympathetic character. But I don't think she was standing on that front step thinking, oh, no, the lovely money. It's the fact, you know, she's been, like, publicly humiliated. She was public enemy number one, and probably quite 
clearly knew that she was being set up to take the rap for something that other people had done. I imagine she'd had an absolutely miserable 48 hours or 24 hours before this resignation, because even dreadful people can have a miserable time. Um, so I think almost it's like somebody's, the, the person who's done this meme can only sort of conceive of the idea of like the toys as being driven by money and salaries and so on, but I think it's perhaps a bit more complex than that. But then, I mean, also, as I saw somebody make the point on Twitter, if you've ever had a party or laughed, you did it while people were dying. I think there has been some objection to the what what has been perceived by some to be a sort of certain po-facedness about all of this, and that there, there was a tweet that was like, they partied while we died, mm. I don't know what to say, and somebody sort of quote tweeted it and said, you didn't die. Mm. But, like, I mean, people... There is a certain level of, like, outrage about it that almost... That, that seems to... That's, that's extremely emotional about it and hence ramps up the idea of, like, of people dying and of her 120k a year job and to me like like yes people people died um and it was a tragedy they didn't to be fair die because of that party the issue with that party is it tells me you cannot believe a fucking word that comes out of that man's mouth Mm. that he but but i mean the thing i guess what i don't get is people knew this he told we knew a year ago he does not care if our bodies pile up in the streets. He steals and he cheats and he lies and he finds it amusing that he does all of those things. Like, he will not be held accountable for anything. And he'll get away with this. Yeah. Um, I, I, well, maybe that's a... Maybe I'm deliberately tempting fate there and in, in a, sort of trying to tease fate out to make me make me look like an idiot but by getting rid of I mean, Boris so, Johnson. Uh, she has to go because she has got no credibility after that mm. footage from a mock press briefing has gone out. Again, yeah. I'm not defending her, but it's not a real press briefing. It's a mock press briefing. Yeah. She's been revealed to look like she's laughing at suffering. So she's got to go. Yeah. Uh, Matt Hancock had to go because he was having an affair inside the building yeah. on camera during restrictions. Um, the alien one, what was it? I've forgotten his name. The one who went to Barnard Castle. Dominic, um, Dominic Cummings had to go because he flouted rules. Boris Johnson can do anything he likes. Yeah, and he's, he's got his and own. And so can Pretty Patel. Yeah, she seems to be pretty much. I wonder why she's exempt. Coated. Well, I don't know, but when she was accused of the bullying, remember there was mm. the WhatsApp former protective circle around the Pritster. Yeah. Um, but other people are just collateral. Yeah. To him, aren't they? Just before we move on to this, I've thought of a reason why the Ian Hislop monologue is in it, in itself satirical. Okay. Because he's not just talking about the situation, is he? Specifically discussing her apology. Yeah. And he's saying her apology isn't an apology because she's she's like pushing the blame onto the yeah. people. I'm sorry if you feel like it meant this. Which is exactly what Boris Johnson did, isn't he? I'm sorry if the untrue rumours have given the wrong impression. Yeah. Fuck off. And the way <laughs> the way that he's saying it, it, it's reminiscent of that kind of passive aggressive. Dodge from mm. uh, dodge from blame, which we see mm. very often. I suppose his performance of her words—that's where you get your exaggeration for historical effect. And, yeah. and in caricature, in it in that moment, he's flagging how stupid it is and how in, in, insincere it is. Yeah. So I think the actual statement was in itself satirical on its own. Okay. Well, <laughs> if that if that means we were justified in all of this ranting, then I'll take it. Honestly, come for the botched impressions of Peep Show and stay for the. Um, rapidly dateable rants about Boris Johnson. Hey, maybe one day we'll be able to put this conversation in a book and, yeah, and yeah, flog it for that'd impact. Yeah, that'd be legit, wouldn't it? Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. Um, well, so that was very interesting, but it wasn't... Well, I mean, it says in the script it wasn't very Christmassy, but it's about Christmas parties, though. So, yeah. You know, Christmas time, cheese and wine. Yeah, so I suppose it's not very um, uplifting, yeah. is it? No, it's not very uplifting. So should we try and be uplifting in the Christmas bit? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so what is this podcast that everyone's listening to, Joe? This is the podcast that some people are listening to called Smith & War Talk About Satire, a podcast in which I, Joe War, senior lecturer in 19th <laughs> century literature, and you... Adam Smith... Senior lecturer in 18th century literature. Talk about the oh. function, future, future, and history of satire in a desperate bid to amass <laughs> quantifiable impact for our research. It is a desperate and ongoing bid, isn't it? So now that all the housekeeping is sorted, shall we talk about satire some more? Let's do that. Crack on. So, uh, as we joked at the top of the show, we had quite a, quite a tough time trying to decide what to do for our self-indulgement Christmas episode, didn't we, Joe? Yeah, uh, because nothing nothing we've done so far in this episode has been remotely self-indulgent, has it, you big poo? You <laughs> fucking shithead. Um, yeah, we were... We, <laughs> that was a quote. Yeah. We were torn, weren't we, between doing a Christmas sketch like we did on our first episode. First festive episode. Our first festive yeah, episode, yeah. Was, it's a satirical life, which is an absolutely timeless classic. Um, new listeners should definitely go back out, back and uh, check that one out because it's very good. Yeah, or like uh, the sketch in our second Christmas episode, which was self-referentially entitled... Self-referentially entitled sounds like um, something we might get in a review, doesn't it? <laughs> it does, it does. Um, yeah, I was going to say the sketch was self-referentially entitled Karen and Gammon Talk About Salmon. Yes, which was our best work. Not my words, but the actual words of best-selling novelist, poet and satirist Lee Stein. Yeah, so we were torn between doing, a, doing another Christmas sketch or doing what we did last year, which was a Christmas consumer advice episode. Uh, that is to say, our recommendations warnings of things you might like to get or not get for the people you like or hate. So <laughs> we'll be doing that. Um, but before we do... We did have some good ideas for sketches, didn't we, Joe? I think we did, yeah. Should we try and talk about them? Um, yeah. I mean, I I still have a certain fondness for Karen and Gammon, although, yeah. I mean, Gammon, you don't hear that very much anymore, do you? You only really hear about Karen's, and even that's probably died down a little bit, hasn't it? It does seem, yeah, it does seem to have died down a, a little bit. So, I mean, we could maybe bring back those characters another mm. time. Um, yeah, but if we didn't do Karen and Gammon, what would you have done for our Christmas sketch this year? Um... Gosh, well, um, let me think on that. You say what you would have done. Well, I thought about doing a, a Scrooge episode mm. uh, where satire had basically decided to give up and uh, and had stopped being... The idea of satire has stopped being satirical mm. and become a sort of bar humbug type character on right. the basis that the world was too weird mm. um, and then would be visited by ghosts of the christmas pattern yeah and, so i yeah. thought like juvenile could be ju- juvenile could be the marley type yeah. character uh to try and stir satire back and then the ghost of christmas past would be i don't know like swift or some yeah. someone like that the ghost of christmas present would be stuart stuart lee for instance or stuart stuart lee or just stuart lee stuart lee that was yeah. a little easter egg for people who remember our first christmas episode <laughs> and then the ghost of christmas future would be our we will it could just be people in tin hats from yeah. the future talking about what satire is I mean, it's a very good idea, but I could would think it'd probably be quite labour-intensive, and that's a lot of different voices that we'd it have is. to persuade the listeners were all different people. I also realised, as I started to workshop it 
that it's very similar to our It's a Satirical Life well, idea. your theory has always been that It's a Wonderful Life is a sort of inverted Christmas carol anyway, hasn't it? It is, so, or rather, yeah, so I, my theory, for those who haven't heard this before, is that It's a Wonderful Life is the same story as A Christmas Carol, but with an American ending. Mm. So in the English version, he realises he's a horrible shit and has to change his ways. In yeah. the American version, he realises that he was... He's the centre of the universe. <laughs> he is, and um, should just carry on and, yeah. and everyone should be grateful for him. Yeah. So maybe we will do that, but maybe not for a while. Yeah, I think that would take a lot more um, research and, and prep, won't it? Yeah. But maybe one day. Um, and so after you said that, I um, think I just thought, oh, well, what's another thing? What's another famous Christmas thing? I don't know, like you could have Home Alone and instead of the burglars, it's satire trying to break in. No, it doesn't really work. <laughs> um, what else is a Christmas film? <laughs> Die Hard, but instead of Bruce Willis, it's satire or something something like that but yeah. none of the, the only one i could think of that sort of loosely might work was um elf oh yeah whereby you could have it that the whole of new york had to sort of sing a, a satirical song in times square so that satires slay <laughs> slay that's like a play on words isn't it mm. you like slay people with your satirical words instead of being a slay it could be a whip yeah. That has to and it lash. would all be opposite, wouldn't it? Because like Buddy the Elf believes in Christmas and he believes in the Christmas spirit and he's sort of childish and infantile and everyone else has lost their sense of satire. But if instead of that you had this sort of really cynical, satirical elf who sort of turns up and um, satirizes everything and his his biological father and his and that man's wife and child like find him really difficult to get along with because he's always sneering at things yeah that would be, that I think would be that, quite good i actually think yeah. that that one out of all of them has got the biggest running legs the only other idea i had as well is because carolyn gammon was sort of a callback wasn't it mm. to a throwaway comment we made a few episodes earlier I was trying, racking my brain to try and think of equivalents this year, and there was one time when we both said that we would write a satirical poem mm. a few months ago, and I thought we could write the satirical poem and then get it judged by someone like Lee Stein or yeah, Kat Rosenfield. Luckily, Armando Inucci wrote a satirical poem, and so uh, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about that instead. instead. Aren't we? um, I've got. Me the I am still thinking about my satirical poem, though. And yes, I thought it would be a twelve, still a twelve canto poem about mm. what twenty twenty was like for nature. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to call it 2023. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what nature would be like, I am in the trees, I am the grass, I am a tree, um, I am healing. Yeah. They are the virus, that sort of thing. Yeah, but 12 Sounds times. Fucking shit. 12 times. Yeah. I reckon it's going to sell serious. Do you? I think it's going to be a lot of units of that this, poem. Yeah. Of all the things I've got on the back burner, I think mm. this is going to be the one that's going to make me a millionaire this time Do next you? year. Oh, yeah. That's so sweet. Yeah. No one reads this stuff, actually. No. Oh, that's another Christmas film we could have done. <laughs> no one reads this, actually. <laughs> no one reads this stuff, actually. Yeah. In yeah. which uh, a Prime Minister is, is... We could do a version of Love, actually, where the Prime Minister is Boris Johnson and... Um, yeah. Everything goes to shit. What would be quite good is if Boris Johnson, because Boris Johnson often says that he's satirical, but we don't think he does. He's a buffoon. Mm. So Boris Johnson could be Andrew uh, Lincoln from The Walking oh, Dead. Oh, right, okay. Uh, trying to. So he would play that character, or what? He would be that role in the story. Okay. And Keira Knightley would be satire. Yeah. And satire would basically just be like, as I think Keira Knightley should be in mm. my version of that film, if I write it, just fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me yeah, alone. Don't true. stand outside my house. Yeah, that's weird. Behavior. With your weird it's letters. Not it's okay, not romantic. It? Yeah. That's weird. Please go away. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that may have loads of ideas yeah. for next time. Yeah. So, what was what was that one going to be called? No one reads this stuff, actually. No one reads this stuff, yeah. actually, yeah. <laughs> Heartwarming film by um, 
Yeah. Uh, so that was the trimmings, which we've just force fed our listeners. Shall we legit move on to the meat or meat substitute of this episode? Yeah, just before we do, uh, can we talk about your recent experience in the media? Because you've had a brush with stardom, haven't you, Joe? No, I haven't had a brush with stardom. What I've done is um, given an interview about the late night satirical output in the UK, how it differs from that in the US, what the state of the news and politics are in the UK, yeah. um, just with um, with a company who researched these things. Cool. Yeah. So, what what do you think? TV satire should look like? Well, it was really interesting to talk about it because I had like a list sent over of like, you know, here are some shows it might be worth thinking about. Um, you know, what do these shows sort of have in common? What what does this tell us about the current TV landscape? And I had a look at them and one of my earliest thoughts was like, fucking hell, that is a lot of men. That is every, almost every one of these shows is hosted by a man three man men sitting on a sofa and talking about legs for example or hosting kind of the last leg I'm I got it I got it yeah um, host, sometimes hosting audience studio discussions sometimes standing in front of windows with like nightlit cityscapes outside and a big computer screen next to them or sometimes doing that but occasionally handing over to Rachel Paris it's a lot of men but I also think like I don't think there's any simple answer to that because I think if you're like okay what if we did one of those but it's a lady I feel like there'd be a certain amount of skepticism around that and um and so <laughs> that would be that would be really difficult so I was thinking there are, there are kind of categories aren't there there are there's narrative satire which um was slightly less the focus of this discussion you know there's there's shows with stories and actors and narrative and plot but then in terms of the kind of late night friday saturday output you either have like people celebrities on couches sitting to other sitting and talking to other celebrities on couches and the 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 producers i guess sort of know they can trust them to be funny and that the conversations will will be amusing and then you have that kind of this sort of product that looks a bit like um it, it kind of crosses over into a news show so, so they kind of talk about explicitly like give you the headlines and the facts and then sort of talk about it um, so you've got man behind a desk or men on a sofa essentially haven't you and then one of the things that it kind of made me think was that I don't know the viewing figures for all of those things but it seems to me that what British audiences are quite keen on is um, banter that even if it isn't unscripted, manages to look as if it is unscripted. So even in like non-satirical output, things like um, Mortimer and Whitehouse go fishing, um, or to to a more um, to to cite an older example like The Trip, or things like um, The Last Leg, people it seems to me like kind of warm to that idea of like just listening to some funny people talk to each other. I think that's a lot of that accounts for the success of our podcast. Well, it, well I was just going to say, I mean, that's... So would you like to talk now? Yeah, yeah, well, I was just thinking that adjusts the gap in the market, isn't it? Mm. For two people who are well-versed in satire, who are easy listening, yeah. ideally a man and a woman, yeah. to talk about topical satire So in the on end, the I think my, my suggestion would be that... Uh, Smith and Moore talk about satire is immediately commissioned by Channel Four to appear yeah. regularly on Friday nights um, 
forever. Yeah, we can bring yeah. our own bring our own production company. Very low low <laughs> yeah, very low yeah. overheads. Uh, no. Yeah, but so it was interesting because I was thinking, you know, and I watched like a lot of clips because I'd seen a lot of the shows that were relevant to the discussion, but not all of them. So in preparation, like I watched watched quite a lot of clips of stuff and mm. um, started to to notice certain similarities and, and and dissimilarities between UK and US output as well. Um, cool. So yeah, that that was um that was a lot of fun. That sounds really cool. Mm. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. Uh it was it was excellent. What would you like to talk about now? Advice. Advice. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you want to go first? Uh, I can go first if yeah. you would like. Yes. Yeah, um, yeah. So why don't you ask me what I've been reading? What this have week? you been reading this week? I've Jay? been reading *Pandemonium: Some Verses on the Current Predicament* by well-known satirist Armando Iannucci. Oh, excellent. Um, yeah, and it is excellent in my opinion. Um, so it's a brief volume, just containing one. Um, narrative poem um, an epic mock heroic poem as the blurb says written in response to the pandemic with all the anger and wit that Armando Iannucci brings to his vision of contemporary events Um, so it tells the story from the initial outbreak um, up to sort of Christmas last year I suppose Um, is obviously in a sense it's dated already because there's there's no Omicron um, there's no 2020 Christmas parties but you kind of the way that it it leaves you it doesn't the, or the way that it ends you don't feel like oh what a, what a fool like that's already out of date you feel like those events could very easily and naturally be um, inferred from what he's already written like it's all within the fictional world that he has described um, hopefully I'll try and find a way to make that make sense so um, the the story starts with the the virus kind of gathering speed, and um, it's it's written in a kind of Miltonic register, and tells the story of the brave leader Orbis, sometimes known as Boris. There's um, Matt Hancock who sort of rides a a ghastly um, hybrid of bodies and legs all tangled up that's essentially like the rest of the cabinet with the head of Dido on the top who just keeps saying like I don't know anything about this I can't I can't do anything and it, it sort of recounts everything in, in loosely allegorical but very recognisable um, terms and it's it's funny um, it's really funny and really clever and really smart there's kind of shades of like a, a, a Chris Morris brass eye kind of register at times as well and I'll give an example of this in a moment but like he's obviously he knows how to write this sort of mock heroic poem he knows all of the ticks and the tropes of the kind of poem that he's satirising um, well if he's not satirising the poem he's using the form to satirise the situation um, but so lines like and all its truth for truth also can mutate into 20 truths and spawn 20 variants more once uttered slotting any gaping void of sense and fitting it like a fisting fact um I, that just made me think of of brass eye um but it, it's also um 
it's a good example that line because it it's conflating the idea of like viral information and and viral lies and the virus itself with variants which obviously apply to both and then the idea of the gaping void that it refers most obviously to sort of the emptiness of ignorance and unknowing and uncertainty but is also um a, a rude joke about bottoms as well i think the and lines like the the friends that's what it's called like the mon- the composite monster that matt hancock is riding are described as a, a string of 15 twats and a <laughs> um and dido harding as i say is the gleaming head upon the beast um it's also i think it's really interesting doing it in this form because because Boris Johnson does sometimes affect that kind of heroic register in his language of like turning back tides and um, sort of his own self-aggrandizement in his language. There's a really nice bit where um, Orbis does a speech and says, we will ride out and rid this realm of any wretch that impedes our life. We will tell this vermin to vamoose. Ha ha! cried everyone. Vamoose! Though we are in pain, we can also laugh at this speech's illiterate effect. Vamoose! Ha ha! Which I liked. And then Dominic Cummings appears here as um, a shape in ghastly yet human form, a wan appearance as if disappointed evermore, sitting in a cart drawn by a hundred thousand scurrying creatures, mice and bats, insects and rats, all pu- all pulling. And um, Orbis says, like, like, why are you doing this? Why are you sitting in a cart forever going round and round? And he says, I once could see, but now I'm blind and cursed eternally to test my sight around this pillar, powered by these withered creatures. So... He's, he's become this kind of grotesque beast who um, just has to drive to test whether or not he can see all the time. <laughs> um, and I'm just going to read one last little bit and then you can ask me questions if you want to. Yeah. So this is this is Dominic Cummings sort of talking about how he he's essentially in this fictional world, like he's at the centre of it, he can see everything, he can see the future, he knows what's coming. Um, and he, he describes this to whilst Boris Orbis is at this point, this is the point in the real world where um, where Boris actually had COVID and so he's in hospital and he's having this strange fevered dream of, of all of these characters. Um, and he's asked, do you see what I see? Do you feel my hateful realisation of how little we are against this death-dealing disease? And against the force of the world beyond us that we are deaf to, the natural order we dare to think we can enslave, how it outlives us, diminishing us by comparison, like mayflies to a tree. Not necessarily, argued Orbis, and then woke up, and that's the end of the section. So that's, I think that's like quite a nice example of the way that the tone, uh, that Bathos in particular, kind of works in this text, but also of just how good Iannucci is at the particular kind of poetic voice that he's um, that he's using here for what I would have to say is biting, lashing, searing satire. Fantastic. So yeah, have you got any questions, anybody? Um. Well, I mean, just at the, did I notice that the epigraph is from Paradise Lost? At the um, start, I think let it, me have a look. Just when you're flicking through there. Um, yes, it is. Yeah, so I mean, I think... And it begins very similarly to, to Paradise Lost with a sort of um, imploring to the muse to, to help him talk about what, what happened. And it's, yeah. Yeah, I mean, what he's doing is, uh, I hate to say it, but it's quite self-consciously of the 18th century, isn't it? This mm. is like, so early 18th century Augustan poets like Pope yep. and Swift... I mean, obviously, Rapid Lock is a good example of, a, of exactly this, where he takes the epic form yeah. and uses applies it to something trivial, but also just generally that early 18th century Scriblerian poetry, that is to say, like Swift, Pope and Gay, 
they would take classical models mm. and then apply them to contemporary circumstances. And part of the formal effect of that would be bathos, which is... So, for example, here's Georgic poems from the ancient world, which are used to celebrate nature and celebrate beauty and celebrate the pastoral. What happens if we use that form to describe London? And you get yeah. Jonathan Swift's description of a city shower and it's just horrible... Uh, dis- like almost documentary realism descriptions of how shit London is. I think that's exactly what he's doing. I guess what's different between this and the kind of poems you're talking about is this isn't like boring old tat. But um, yeah, I think you you're right about that. Yeah, <laughs> I know you, I know you're joking, but um, I mean I was going to say one of the differences. It was between... a joke. Adam. It was a Christmas joke. <laughs> I was going to say one of the things is obviously it's unlikely. I don't imagine that many students who I who I teach rape it a lot to sit at home trickling to it as they read it. Uh, although I th- I think the more they understand it, the more likely that is to yeah. it's going to happen. But also That's the reason I can tell when something's really funny, isn't it? If you have to explain to people at length in a ninety minute session that it's funny that. I was going to make a real point, which you're actually hinting at, which is that one of the reasons why Wraith the Luck is perhaps less funny than that might be, mm. Pandemonium, is that all the topical references are obsolete, yeah. which is something you said at the start will be yeah. the case with this poem. Hope um, <laughs> comes absolute really soon. Yeah. yeah, I mean, who's going to... I mean, 100 years from now, people are going to... Or two, 300 years from now, people are going to have to be looking at the footnotes to realise that Dominic Cummings drove yeah. the car to test his eyesight, aren't they? I mean, is, it, it's ironic, isn't it? Because like, I massively rate this poem i think it's like super clever and super satirical but also like my best hope for it would be that numerous copies of it um you know like there are some books that you always see in charity shops and you know you the best one could hope is that in 20 years time is one of those and somebody picks it up and it just looks really dated and they they've sort of forgotten this and the, and the worst would be that everyone's dead and no one can read it yeah anymore but yeah, and so it, two two potentially yeah. very optimistic predictions for um, this book. In the short term, just buy it for Christmas. It's really good. Perfect Christmas yeah. present. Stocking filler, although mm. I think it's like twelve ninety nine, isn't it? So it's Oof. a stocking filler for someone you like. Yeah. So, um, but then, but, uh, but I mean, this and something that my example is also doing it is it's a classic mode of satire. Mm. So we often talk on this podcast, and the discussion around satire is often about whether or not satire makes a difference and all that stuff. But satire is a form. Isn't it? Yes, like I it's a form of like I know. Debated that, did we? Yeah, but I <laughs> yeah. mean, but I mean, this is doing satire formally. It's not doing yeah. satire as activism. It's yeah. nece- necessarily, although that's not to say it's not a consequence. It's just f- formally mm. engaging in satire. Um, something else that just occurred to me is I was reading something the other day that said that satire becomes art at the moment it becomes obsolete. Right. So, so it's only when the real world reference are no longer topical. Because before that, it's just invective. Or... Well, it's political rhetoric. Yeah. Um, yeah, which I thought was pretty a pretty neat way yeah. of describing it. Um, so, it's art at the moment where all of those mm. things are no longer topical, which is interesting. Yeah. And and sort of liberates satire from all those questions about whether or not it makes a difference. Yeah. Like yeah. you don't have to you don't have to change the way you think after you've read Animal Farm, although you might. Yeah. But you don't need to change the way you think specifically about the Russian Revolution. No, <laughs> but you, no, you can just enjoy it as an aesthetic object. Yeah, it's sort of immaterial in for most people what their opinion is of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, yeah. So that was a poem, and you enjoyed it. Yes, it, yes. Because you don't like poetry, do you? Uh, generally speaking, I prefer a bit of prose to yeah. uh, to a poem. Yeah. Cool. But, you know, I don't. I don't well, as we, as we've already established, that's not an opinion that gets you a place on an undergraduate course at Cambridge. So, <laughs> but I think that ship has very much sailed. So yeah, I like I like a nice book 
Yeah. With a story. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, then you might not like my example. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was going to talk about a novel, but I use that term advisedly. Mm. It is a novel. It's marketed as a novel, but I think it's kind of... It doesn't have any chapters. The sentences sprawl on. It's... Um, it, I mean, I did teach this recently on mm. our Master's Degree in Contemporary Literature, and although we had quite an interesting conversation in the seminar, people did say... This is not a novel that I would read as a novel, mm. like you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, it is. It's been written by a poet, but it's the debut novel of that poet. The poet is Sam Rivieri, and the book is called Dead Souls. Good title. Um, yes, and uh, it's quite complicated to describe what it's doing. Have a go. Um, but here we are. So it's it's a satire. Um, n- so it begins by following a character. We never find out the name of the character. This character is our first person narrator as well. Mm-hmm. Is that right? No, no, sorry, sorry. So forget I said that. No, we follow a character. It often does free and direct discourse. We follow a character. Uh, We don't know what their name is, but they are referred to as an editor of a mid-circulation literary magazine. Right. And that's repeated over and over again. One of the comedic devices is that things are repeated to the point where they're meaningless. So every time, so so it'll be like something 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 said the editor of the mid-circulation literary magazine gotcha. the, mid, the editor of the mid-circulation magazine goes like that so this editor of the mid-circulation magazine um he's kind of disenchanted with poetry as a industry slightly he still participates in it it's still his job but he he's quite proud for example that he hasn't been to a poetry reading for many years and nobody's noticed because he realized that he doesn't actually enjoy poetry readings and then he meets a character um he meets a character quite quickly or he starts to hear about a character called Solomon Wise and it's almost as though Solomon Wise is actually the protagonist of this story rather than our vocaliser character um, and it transpires that in the world of this book uh, the, the publishing industry the fiction and poetry the creative, the sort of creative industries part of publishing industry had been rocked by a series of scandals um, and just p- whenever things got published people would have a problem with it things were getting cancelled it was hard to make a book so the publishing industry secretly started to look back at their back catalogue to see what books had been successful change the titles and the covers and the author's names and print them again and nobody noticed right. one of the reasons nobody noticed we might speculate is because not many people actually read books like a lot more people buy books than read them so I mean that's where the satire starts however this was this eventually came out not immediately <laughs> Um, and to try and win back the trust of the public, the publishing industries all got together and invented a new computer system called Quacks, which is a uh, acronym for a new qualitative software, plagiarism software, basically. And they say that everything published from this point on has to be more than 96% original or we won't publish it. Um, and that actually creates a boom in the publishing industry, particularly in the poetry industry. Um, uh, and then Solomon Wise comes along and it transpires that all of Solomon's wiser stuff is is completely plagiarised and he doesn't really care. And then he starts performing live to get around the quack software, but it turns out that everything he says is, is also a tapestry of quotations. And that that's kind of like the premise. I can mm. see you're getting bored with me telling no, the story no, of it. But... I was thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of in terms of the story. But it's not it's quite difficult to follow because what happens is the editor of the Mid-Circulation Literary Magazine ends up hearing about Solomon Wise, then he goes to a poetry event that he doesn't want to go to and ends up talking to Solomon Wise, and then Solomon Wise tells him a series of stories about other people he's met that led him to where he is, and sort of his story, but there's often digressions. So Solomon Wise, for example, spends a lot of time talking about a man that he met in a library who would, uh, who basically would make illegal copies of library books and sell them on the dark web. Right. And then we hear about people that he met. So you end it's up with... Like, of Project Gutenberg. 
No, no, okay. I suppose not. But you end, so well, there's often, only old books, isn't but it? But then there are these moments where it'll be like said the character to the other character yeah. in, the, in the living room to the character who's relating the story to Solomon who is relating the story to the editor of the mid-circulation magazine in the bar below the Travelodge so you, you, it's kind of like layers and layers and layers and layers so in terms of like narrative action that's what's going on um, I think the interests of the oh you'll say as well just before I forget Emma Sullivan mm. um, has a blog called Humour in the Arts mm. it's a fantastic blog Emma Sullivan is a, is a fan of the podcast. Yeah. She's an academic, she, but she writes these blog posts which are phenomenal. And she's written a really, really good one about this about book. This. Um, yeah, which is I, that where the recommendation came from as well? That's also where the recommendation yeah. came from. Yeah, so everyone, everyone should check that out. Um, but um, but yeah, so I think obviously the book What's, is interesting. Did you say what the blog is called? Yeah, Humor in the okay, Arts. Right, it's just yeah, called so Humor in the Arts by Emma Sullivan, and everything is reviewed mm. on there. Really pithy insightful blog posts it's a great resource um, and I'm really glad that she does that uh, but yeah I think the interests of the, of, the, of the book are a few so obviously it's an interest in plagiarism mm. um, but I think it's less interest in plagiarism more interested in the sort of myth of originality um, or the, the fetishization of originality mm. but I think the book is also interested in a kind of um, just a hollowness to things mm. so like the publishing industry like no one's reading those books when he describes going to a poetry reading he talks about how the only bit that's meaningful is the bit at the start where someone stands up and says your exits are here here and here we're not expecting a fire alarm tonight and there'll be a drinks reception at 90 minutes yeah. and after that everything else is kind of hollow yeah it's just a performance of the same stuff yeah, yeah. and and solomon wise the main character is he talks about this emptiness that follows him around uh, or that he that he's trying he's trying to get into this emptiness um, because everything is is performative and um and there's descriptions of walking around london there's one bit where the editor the Emma sullivan talks about this in her essay where the editor is the editor of the small literary magazine is walking around london and saying that he can't really enter london because he's seeing it through uh the, this sort of shadowy membrane of all the times he's seen these scenes in films in tv on instagram on social media like there's nothing and the book is basically a series of case studies where you have something which turns out to be hollow um, and also there's no interiority for any of these characters yeah. and it doesn't have chapters but it does have a page at the start where it tells you the names of characters and what page they appear <laughs> um, so it, so there's all of that going on or oh, that's just one other interesting fact is according to Emma Sullivan um, the the title is actually from a book by Gogol yeah yeah and the style is adapted from an author called Thomas Bernard so the book itself is doing is doing plagiarism yeah. in a way Um and I wondered if, when I got to the end of it, that the, there was two satirical, there was two points that was being made. Is this a spoiler? No, no. Okay. This is this is what I think. It's not the end of the story, but this is what I think is the thesis of the book. One, I think, is that the creative arts industry is subject to the same capitalist forces we critique elsewhere, and the myth that it's not is one of these hollow yeah. hollownesses. Um, but also, I think the idea is that our identity, if you like, it, it is one of those. Is, is plagiarised from lots yeah. of different sources. Um, there's one bit in the book where it describes... I think Solomon Wise says that he feels like he is inhabited by words all yeah. his life. So, like, we're just empty vessels that words pass through and we have not much agency or autonomy over those and that, so therefore any discussion of originality is a fraught one. So that sounds quite philosophical, which it is, but also it's laugh-out-loud funny. There are some laugh-out-loud funny moments in this book. Um, Do you like to swap books and then yeah. we can read the other one here's that's the sound idea. of some books yeah. being swapped <laughs> thank you there we go right that sounds really good does it so have you got any questions yeah. or comments about that um no i just think i would like to read it actually um 
I think, yeah, that it sounds like he's doing several. Um, it's, there's several targets there, then, aren't there? About sort of inauthenticity and being composed of and constructed by language and language that has no originality or mm. meaning left in it, and that, that like, that's a big, big topic in and of itself, isn't it? And then something perhaps more specific about the publishing industry and magazines and yeah. um, journalism yeah. and, and poetry itself. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, I thought, how did Sam Rivieri get away with this? Because he is a by trade a contemporary poet. But there's some of the specific takedowns of contemporary poetry and contemporary poets in this book are like, they are blistering. Like, mm. he suggests that no contemporary poet really has any coherent identity. They're, they're, they're attributed or, or go out of their way to be attributed a particular characteristic. Yeah. And everyone stops listening when they read, when the person reads out the bio and says, like, this person is this type of poet, this type of working class poet or queer poet or whatever. And everyone's like, oh, cool. Then they do the poem. Everyone zones out. The poet, the, yeah. the poet doesn't. The poem doesn't really mean anything. And then, based on the biography and the way it was framed, people can ask questions and make comments and decide yeah. if they want to have that book on their bookshelf. Do but you think that, that's true? I mean, do you think the contemporary poetry scene is actually that shit? Um, well, what I was going to say is, I thought, how did he do that? How did he get away with it? But I think it's because he chooses that as his microcosm, if you like, his case study. But his mm. thesis is everything is like that yeah and that, that's just so it's more that that's the industry he knows about yeah and that he's got something particular to say about contemporary poetry. yeah yeah um i couldn't possibly comment i mean <laughs> no. i've certainly the descriptions of people sitting in 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 poetry readings and disengaging as soon as the announcement's been made about where the fire exits are mm. and just canting down to the time where they can have a drink of wine um i have felt like that in all yeah. kinds of events, not just poetry readings, many different <laughs> kinds of events, <laughs> where even when I've tried really hard to like engage with it, um, yeah. not for a long time, but certainly I can remember when I was first starting out going to conferences and things, really struggling to stay in the moment. Yeah. yeah, and it, and it, but then the, the, but then that's part of what the book is about—the performative aspect of a conference, which is yeah, everybody goes, a paper happens, there's some rudimentary conversation, and then the reason it's happened is so that everyone can say that they were there and tell their yeah. institution they were there, and whether or not it's meaningful is less less significant. Everyone's colluding. The forms, yeah. get, the forms that you're filling to get the funding to go to the conference, sort of build into the process that it will be meaningful, but it might not necessarily be, and those kinds of things. Mm. Um, so yeah oh well I recommend it well thank you and you recommend it to our listeners yeah I will yeah I mean some people because I've been quite evangelical about reading this and some people have, have like I say said it wasn't an enjoyable experience to read I found it I mean I think it's doing challenging things in terms of form but I did find it enjoyable to read but a few I had a few Sunday evenings where I went to the market cat in York and just read this mm. and it's really enjoyable to read it's, really, yeah. it's quite nice to read out loud as well because Did you do the, that in the market camp? No, no, no. Did you but, do a little um, reading? No, yeah. but uh, when I was teaching it, yeah. because some of it, it just was, it was he's a poet, isn't he? So prosody mm. is an aspect of it. So, I mean, that there is, yeah, so I liked it a lot. Cool. Um, what else are we going to talk about? We were going to talk about Alan Mackay's Don't Look Up, but we haven't seen it. So That's right. I mistakenly not. thought that that was going to come out in England on the 10th of October. Well, it doesn't come out on Netflix, but it's not until later, is it? No. Yeah. So we'll talk about that in January, shall we? We can, yeah. I mean, yeah. but I mean, so that's a big satirical film that's coming out. There's a satirical film that's out right now as well. Uh, well, there's a film out right now. 
Ridley mm. Scott's House of Gucci. Um, and a lot of the press coverage seems to think it's satire, which is, this is a phenomenon that we've seen before. Um, but if you Google this, listeners, you'll if you Google the words House of Gucci satire, you'll see that most of the comments, most of the titles of articles talk about it being satire. But I want to talk about this very briefly, just because the reason people say that, I think, is not anything to do with what the film is doing, but because of a comment that Ridley well, Scott made in an have interview. Have you seen the film? No, I haven't. Okay. But I want to see what this you think is about this. like Sam could satirizers doing a podcast talking about a film that we haven't seen um, um but, well at least we're being honest don't we we are but i mean we're talking about the the whole discourse around the discourse the in the culture yeah. as they say okay, yeah um what did ridley scott say so ridley scott said this magazine? he said so he's, so obviously the film is about the house of gucci these characters mm. in real life so it's not dissimilar to some of the talk we were having about uh about art friend and these are real people and it's their real lives and he's been a, the house of gucci don't like it that's come one of the stories right. And he said, I've tried to be as respectful as possible by being as factual as possible and as factual as we can possibly imagine. But then he says this, the story, in a funny kind of way, it's a satire. And therefore, satire is really a posh way of saying it's comedy. And I think a lot of it is comedic, certainly the first two acts. Right. And a because, posh way of saying comedy. And because of that quote, a lot of the discourse around it is dis- debating, is it satire? Is it successful right. satire? Now, I think he's wrong. His quote mm. is wrong. Satire isn't a posh way of saying comedy. No, but I think it's often considered to be so. But yeah, I don't, satire isn't comedy. That's something we've talked about before. It can be. It's not necessarily. They're mm. not synonyms. But then Dan, Daniel Lee, Danny Lee wrote this in the Financial Times. He says, Ridley Scott has called his chaotic new film House of Gucci satire. In other words, it's meant as a joke. That's not other words <laughs> no. for saying that thing, is it? That's, that is a particularly uh, egregious like structure of argument, isn't it? Where... X has said this, in other words, yeah. that. Like, no, they said what they said. Yeah, and then Danny Lee uses this slippage to put the boot in. He says, that mm. explains a lot. I won't read out the whole quote, but he says, that explains a lot. Basically, the film's not very good. And then he says, the only, it's a whodunit, but we all know who did it because it's, it's mm. a historical fact. But the real, cri- the real criminal is Ridley Scott for making this film. Um, th- th- I think that's grotesque because mm. the, the jumps you have to move there is you have to assume that satire and comedy are inexplicable, but then also... Mm. His, the implication here is that if you present something as being satire, it's automatically a joke, and therefore, yeah. and, but also that jokes are trivial and that don't have any weight and that they aren't important, yeah. which invalidates lots of other films, yep. doesn't it? Um, so I thought that was a stupid thing to say. Um, Chris Evangelista wrote for Slash Films that it's a wicked satire of the Ruth of the Rich and Clueless, which I mean, I've, we've not seen the film, but that sounds like a more plausible take. I think yeah. that it's not about the Gucci's; it's about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Brian Ziegler in Pace Magazine said, uh, sorry, Brianna Ziegler said in Pace Magazine, the film is a loud, luxurious, and long farce. 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 Not farce. I'd like to hear a loud, luxurious, and long fart. That that could be like a satirical project, couldn't it? You go to the cinema and it's just 90 minutes of somebody doing a loud, luxurious, and very long fart. Well, from some reviews, it sounds like that's not dissimilar to what Ridley Scott has produced. Seen a film which I would describe as a loud, luxurious, and very long fart, and that is the film Happy Feet. Oh yeah, which is god awful shit. <laughs> um, yeah, so okay, so well, farce is different from satire. Yeah, isn't it? again, so, yeah. I mean, so I think the death of Stalin is a satirical farce. Yep, but that, that that's You're different. A satirical fart. <laughs> Um, but then also, the, just the last one I wanted to mention is New York Times. Uh, Vanessa Friedman ran with an article that had the headline, The Gucci's are really not happy about the House of Gucci. When artistic license collides with reality, which one wins? So this mm. is really getting into bad art friend territory mm. and, and has this statement. 
Yet the film is not presented as magic realism, nor even overt satire. It's based on a non-fiction book by Sarah Gay uh, Forden called The House of Gucci, a true story of murder, madness, glamour and greed. And none of the names have been changed, creating an expectation that what the viewer is seeing is at least a plausible recreation of historical truth. Which is kind of the opposite of what the others are saying, because this person is suggesting that if it is satirical, it's not presented as such, and that's a problem, mm. because it's presented as biography. So it seems, having not seen the film, mm. I, I trust the New York Times to a large extent, that this person is suggesting it's not necessarily framed as satire, um, yeah. and that's an issue. And the issue is also that the real people involved are, are upset about it. Uh, whereas Ridley Scott has sort of paratextually or epitextually framed mm. it as satire by saying that thing in the interview. Do you think we should see this film? I think the only thing we can do is to see this film and decide if it's satire. Yeah. <laughs> if anybody has seen it, please do let us know um, if you think it's satire or not. Yeah. I mean, also, this has been a masterclass in uh, how you talk about something you don't know very much about and haven't seen. Um, so, yeah, House of Gucci there. A very informative discussion from us. Yeah, yeah, more questions than answers. Yeah, definitely um, more questions. Yeah, anyway, I think we're coming to time now, aren't we? We've yes, kept everyone we long enough. Um, it's been a big bumper Christmas so special. So what, if you, in these last few minutes, um, if you could have one wish for 2022, what would it be? Um, to have Sam Rivieri and Amanda Iannucci come on the podcast and talk about these books. Okay. What would yours be? world peace <laughs> yeah, everybody always says that don't they uh, um, well I think mine might be less specifically like satire oriented I, I mean it's like I don't want to go for something about Covid or something about climate change oh I thought we were talking specifically the, about the podcast no no okay. just, just a wish for 2022 <laughs> okay um, um, yeah but have you got some nice plans for Christmas uh, yes, I am. Well, well, enjoy well, having them smashed to smithereens yeah. by Boris Johnson and his crowd of cunts. Then, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, I've got nice plans for Christmas too, but um, yeah, we shall see, huh? I think after last year, more more than ever, I think it's just important. It's just quite nice to, if you get to spend some time with your family, mm. that is a win, isn't it? Yeah. Like anything more ambitious than that is hubris. <laughs> um, yeah, well, I haven't got anything more ambitious than that planned either, but that feels quite ambitious at the moment. Yeah, good for you. Yeah. I mean, I know we've talked a lot about it already, but last year I went to go and see Wonder Woman 1984 at the cinema. It's a long mm. film. It's like three hours. I went in, everything was fine. Put my phone in airplane mode, came out of the cinema, took my phone off airplane mode. It was going crazy. So the you went on that Saturday afternoon? Yeah, the announcement was made whilst I was in Everyman Cinema watching oh, Wonder Woman 1984. And I came out and it, it was like a disaster movie everyone's freaking out I had all these messages my family were like what's the implications for us my friends were like everything's ruined this Mm. is terrible Christmas is over it was horrible and and I and I just wish that Wonder Woman 1984 had been a shorter film (laughs) or a very much longer film yeah and then people wouldn't have had to wait two hours for my reassurances because that really would be like the twist of the knife wouldn't it you're like Christmas is cancelled Covid's going through the roof everything is awful Oh, tearful conversations with relatives and also Adam Smith hasn't replied <laughs> it, or he's taken slightly longer to reply to my message than would be ideal I just yeah that would that would I think I, I can see why you feel that sort of yeah, level upset, of responsibility about mom. it alright your mum yeah but I was going to say yeah. I thought you were going to say all of that and then it turned out there was another three hours of Wonder Woman 1984 <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but no you're right yeah. so um, <laughs> on that bombshell <laughs> yeah well, Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, Joe. And a Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Fat Thank chance. you for another wonderful year Thank on the podcast. Thank you for a satirical year of satirical life. 
and satirical podcasting. If people want to let us know that they've been impacted by us this Christmas, what should they do? They could drop us a line on Twitter at Satire No More. Yep. Anything well, else? They can send us an email at satire no more at gmail.com. Yeah, or uh, follow us on Instagram. Uh, at Talk About Satire. Yeah, that's the one. And just, yeah, stay safe. Yeah. Have a nice Christmas. And Sit up. Shut up. And eat my Christmas satire. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye.